Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Good morning, everyone. We are now in week two of church history. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for, uh, for those in the first service, the wonderful sermon we heard and uh, Elizabeth's testimony, and we pray for her as she continues on her journey. Lord, be with us this morning as we study the history of your church, how you have preserved it, uh, grown it, and take charge and command it. Lord, we pray that we would, uh, through this study, through our time together and discussion, that we would learn things we didn't know so that we uh, become more like you. Lord, um, we ask that you be with all of us here this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so just a brief recap. Last week we talked about um, just some foundations of church history, why we should study church history, um, some examples that we can learn. We also talked about the early church and the pressures that the early church communities were facing. There were small islands in a sea of paganism and, and wickedness in the Roman Empire. And then we also talked about um, some persecutions, and I passed around a little chart um, uh, identifying some early uh, martyr, martyrs in the early church and went through how all the apostles were persecuted in various ways and the early church had to deal with a um, persecution on and off. And so today I kind of want to hone in on one particular individual um, who was persecuted. So we are at still in the first century, um, and his name is Polycarp. I don't have slides yet, so when they come up. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Um, Smyrna. Um, when I say bishop, I don't mean like we, I said this last week, I don't mean like we have um, in the Roman church today, but Think of like lead pastor, senior pastor of a congregation. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, um, and he was martyred for the faith. Um, there is a letter um, written about his martyrdom called the Martyrdom of Polycarp, and so we're going to go through that letter today. If you were in my little preview class over the summer, this will be old hat for you. Um, so we're going to talk about Polycarp and and how he dealt and basically how he stood firm to the end. Um, he was a disciple of John. The Roman authorities at this time, they were seeking to arrest him. And only after much persuasion from his friends did Polycarp go into hiding. So he didn't technically run from martyrdom, but he, he didn't quite seek it either. Um, <clears throat> and one of the, in the early church at this time, the thinking was, if God had willed that you were to be blessed to be killed, then praise God. Today, I would think most of us would, you know, speaking for myself, we'd probably try to get out, try to save ourselves. I'm not saying that one is wrong or the other, but this was the mindset of the early church. Um, eventually, the authorities were to find him in a little house, but only after he was betrayed by a servant that gave up his location. And so let me read to you what had happened when the soldiers actually came and found him at his house. So this is from the letter called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. And being about evening to the place where he was, they found him, Polycarp, 
lying down in the upper room of a certain little house from which he might have escaped into another place. But he refused, saying, The will of God be done. So when he heard that they were come, he went down and spoke with them. And as those that were present marveled as age, at his age, some of them said, what, Was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? So he was 86, or his late 80s at this time. Immediately then, in that very hour, he ordered that something to eat and drink should be set before them. So he asked uh, his servants to bring food and drink to the soldiers who were going to arrest him. Um, let's see. At, and on giving, so he asked the soldiers to go up and pray without disturbance. And on their giving him leave, he stood and prayed, being full of the grace of God, so that he could not cease for two full hours to the astonishment of them that heard him insomuch that many began to repent that it had come forth against so godly and venerable an old man. Um, and so just want to point out four things that happen here. So he's, Polycarp's about to be arrested. Um, he has a chance to flee, and he doesn't. Number two, he offers the soldiers who come to arrest him food and drink. Number three, he prays for two hours. The next chapter says he prayed for anyone he ever met, and he prayed for the church worldwide. And number four, the soldiers began to repent or be remorseful that they had to arrest such an old man because of the kindness he showed to them. So anyone have any initial reactions to Polycarp's actions? What are your thoughts about how he reacted to actually being arrested to be put to death? Clearly trusted in God. Uh-huh. wondering about why like he's he's it, it must have been quite the scene i mean how, we know how many soldiers came to arrest him i don't i don't recall it must have been quite the scene for him but like if they kind of I'm, I'm thinking like a swat team like goes in and you know it's like oh there's this old guy there it's like what, what are we doing here and, yeah you know he proceeds to pray and, and say oh come, come sit down have some drink have some food yeah like, what, what a scene Mm -hmm. Do you think you, well, this is very hypothetical, we don't, we don't know for sure how we would respond, but do you think that was, would be your first initial reaction, to respond in the same way? I think no. in and of yourself, no, the power of the Holy Spirit respond that way, only the Spirit. Yeah. Didn't he write a letter from the President saying rejoicing in the fact that he was going to be martyred real soon? Don't recall. I'm thinking back to when I read Fox's book. Yeah. He was in there. Oh, yeah. Yep. All right, so Polycarp, he's arrested. He's taken to an amphitheater and placed in front of the proconsul. They want him to recant Christ or be killed. Um, the proconsul actually does not want to kill Polycarp since he's an old man. And so the proconsul appeals to Polycarp's old age to try to get him to recant, and Polycarp will not. So here's the account from the text. The proconsul sought to persuade him, Polycarp, to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to thy old age, and similar other sayings, according to their custom, such as, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, Away with the atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium, and waving his hands towards them, while with groans he looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheists. 
So the proconsul tells Polycarp, basically, stop being an atheist, and Polycarp turns and points to the people in the stands saying, you guys are the atheists, because you are not worshiping the one true God. Um, so even in the midst of basically his imminent death, he still has wit and courage. Um, <clears throat> so the proconsul continues to urge him and says, swear and I will set thee at liberty, reproach Christ. And then uh, a famous line, I guess in church history, which has always been an encouragement to me, Polycarp responds, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? The proconsul then became upset and threatened Polycarp with being ripped to shreds by wild beasts and burned to death. Here's another one of his responses. Thou threaten me with fire which burned for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou, bring forth what thou wilt. So extreme courage and bravery in the face of persecution. And clearly, you know, God is with him in a, in a great manner at this time. Um, so Polycarp then is sentenced to be burned and nailed to a pyre, uh, very similar to what happened to Christ. But as the soldiers are about to nail him, Polycarp says, so they were, the soldiers are going to nail him so he can't just, you know, when he's being burnt, he can't, you know, try to run away. He says, leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me, without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. So, <laughs> any reactions to Polycarp's? Go ahead. Christ could have come down off the cross and he chose to stay there out of love and I see that in Polycarp too, choosing to stay there not only for his congregation but for Christ yeah mm -hmm. um, so Polycarp was killed okay so just a, a reflection question um we talked about it last week, we do not have persecution in this country like what's going on in the first century Roman Empire. Um, but for Polycarp, I think if, some, if this were to happen in our country, um, what can we learn from, from him? Security was in Christ. He knew who he was in Christ. And again, and now they do the big one. Why do we have these stories like this in the early church and not of stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What, what do you mean I'm not following? Well, they're persecuted for worshiping God. They're thrown into the furnace. Then they walk out of the furnace untouched as a as a indication of the power of God. Mm -hmm. Why is it that in the new church he is burned and he actually gets burned mm -hmm. and not delivered? The flames didn't consume me. I sat here for hours and hours not not nailed. I didn't get hurt. Yeah. The fire burnt out. I proved God. And everybody goes, oh my gosh, God is powerful. I don't know why. I mean, that's getting into God's counsel but god himself christ on the cross died so 
But that that served as a sacrifice, the one and only sacrifice, as we're taught, the perfect sacrifice. Later, later in the letter, we do get some account that perhaps some people witnessing Polycarp's death repented and came to faith. One thing we know, Jesus, when he was at the headwaters of the Jordan, he was at the gates of Hades, which was a Roman thing. And Jesus said to Peter at that point, he said, you know, I will tear down the gates of hell. And he's talking about, I'm going to tear down the pagan religions. And what we see is that through the martyrs, okay, the church exploded in Rome. So what Jesus said at that point was exactly true. He said, I'm going to tear down the pagan religion. And by 325, uh, Christianity was the religion, the official religion of Rome, or, or whenever it was, constantly. Yeah. The, the martyrdom that was practiced upon the Christians actually exploded the church hmm. instead of tearing it down. Go ahead, Lenny. I, I think it's really important to remember that history is, is kind of like a lot of basis points for us in terms of our thinking. And it is important to ask why, you know, why Polycarp at 86 years of age, when clearly several times in his life, his very life had been threatened, yet he had been saved, which is true of many of the martyrs and the apostles. Why were they saved and saved and saved? And then at some point, clearly they were, they were martyred. Uh, we can't know. God's thinking in this other than it is his perfect timing and there is always an audience it speaks to them regarding either God's power his unending love for his children uh, the growth of the church there are many answers to that question but it is a good question mm -hmm. yeah it doesn't always work the same right well, and I think that the glory of God was manifested in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the king yeah. and to those watching there. Um, and that God was also glorified in the martyrdom of Polycarp. Yes, the that's a good point. Yeah. So there was different, God was about different purposes for those. It wasn't like, why oh, can he save one and not others? He, yeah. Because it was for his for the glory of God in both cases. Right. Right. Yep. I think also every audience needs something slightly different. Yeah. The audience with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that sign that God's power was true. With Polycarp, that audience just probably needed to see Polycarp's faith and endurance. All right. We're going to jump into the second century, um, kind of pulling up. Uh, following a theme here with uh, persecution and Polycarp. And today we're going to talk about uh, Irenaeus. Um, so let me give you some background before I introduce him a little bit. So we are in second century in AD 177, a brief but another brutal persecution of Christians occurred in southern France. The persecution saw around, quoting, 50 persons, both male and female, young and old, martyred on account of their admitted Christian faith, end quote. Even more people were tortured under the state, all under the rule of Marcus Aurelius, 
Local authorities would hold Christians prisoner until the governor decided what to do with them. After consultation and approval from the emperor, the governor would carry out atrocious acts against Christians. A few scholars believe the persecutions were the most brutal ever recorded. Christians who were Roman citizens were beheaded. Non-Roman citizens were tortured and then gored to death by wild animals, usually in public and in front of large crowds. Quote, in some instances, and perhaps out of sheer frustration at their obstinacy, in terms of both lack of confession and or rather the miraculous lingering of life, Christians eventually had their throats cut if they continued to outlive their oppressors' inhuman treatment, end quote. The only way to survive torture and persecution was to receive a pardon. A pardon was given if the Christian were to pledge allegiance to Rome, recant the Christian faith. Christians from Gaul and southern France wrote letters to other churches letting them know of what was going on. These letters were preserved and later published by Eusebius, who is considered the church's first historian. One letter states, The greatness, indeed, of the tribulation and the extent of the madness exhibited by the heathen against the saints and the sufferings which the martyrs endured in this country we are not able to fully declare, nor is it, indeed, possible to describe them. The letters do go on to describe the persecution in southern France. Those Christians who endured torture were herded into the amphitheater and killed by wild beasts. One of those killed during the persecutions was the bishop, or the lead pastor, um, Pothinius. His successor was Irenaeus. And so this is the context where Irenaeus basically comes in and amidst persecution. The, the flock that he was a part of is destroyed. I don't know completely, but has significant loss. So he was born in modern Turkey in AD 130. When he was young, he heard Polycarp. Irenaeus states this about Polycarp. He was a man who was of much greater weight and more steadfast witness of truth than two guys we will talk about, Valentinius and Marcion, and the rest of the heretics. Irenaeus spent his entire life doing two things, shepherding his flock given to him by God and refuting the beliefs of Valentinius, who was a Gnostic, and Marcion, whose followers became known as Marcionites. Only two of his literary works survived, the demonstration of the apostolic faith, and uh, another work popularly known as Against Heresies. So there are three arch heretics of the early church, Valentinius, Marcion, and um, Arius. Irenaeus fought off two of the three. Arius was, is that the... Arius? He's fourth century. Yes. Yes. So Irenaeus fought off two of the three of the what is considered the arch heretics of the early church. The first one was Valentinius, who was a Gnostic. I really wish I had slides for this one. Jeff, any luck? All right. <sighs> okay. Um, all right. Thank you. Uh, Gnosticism. So I'm going to give you like the common threads of what Gnosticism was because there are different variations and themes in them. And so it's very hard to pin down what it exactly is. Um, Gnosticism receives its name from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. The knowledge is secret and you need it in addition to the scriptures in order to basically to come to salvation. Um, the, there is a... Uh, 
There's a supreme God in the universe that's too great to know. He lives like in a heavenly realm with other sub-gods. And one of these sub-gods named Sophia, she succumbed to her passions and wanted to be like the supreme God. She had a child known as the Demiurge, and he was an evil child just like his mother Sophia. The Demiurge is the one who created the world, and everything he created is evil. The Demiurge is also known as Yahweh, the same from the Old Testament. Um, the supreme God, however, had placed good spirits on earth known as aeons. Aeons would reside inside evil bodies and could be turned on to allow people to escape the evil world. These seeds of light could be turned on through the sun. The passage in John 3.16 is used to show that the supreme God sent his son Christ to free man. Christ is another sub-God sent to enlighten these good spirits within people. Christ temporarily joined with the man Jesus in order to give people the secret knowledge they would need to be freed and gain salvation. No one could come to the supreme, unknowable God unless they came through Christ. Um, so the main point is that Gnosticism involved, oh yes, finally, <laughs> involved some secret knowledge that you needed in order to be saved. Thank you guys. Um, <clears throat> you've probably heard some of Gnostic texts mentioned on the History Channel, Lost Gospels, Gospel of Judas, or Gospel of Thomas. If you actually read them in comparison to the four Gospels, the four Evangelical Gospels, the, the Jesus character in them is, is nothing alike. So I don't know how the History Channel gets by with this stuff. Um, so Irenaeus refutes um, Valentinius particularly. And he says, because Gnosticism has, uh, there's our main themes that apply to all of them, he goes, well, Valentinius is, is very influential at this time. I'm going to go after the head of the snake. If I cut the head off, the rest of the snake will die. His, he says, it is not necessary to drink up the ocean in order to learn that its, Walter, that its water is salty. By that, he means, I'm going to go after this guy, and that should take care of the rest. And that's eventually what would happen over time. Um, let's see. The problem was is that Valentinius and the Gnostics, they would use similar terms that Christians would use. They would use the Son, they would use God, they would use Jesus, but their meanings were different. And so people would become confused. And so Irenaeus, now being uh, a leader of a congregation in a flock, would, would want to refute errors in the church that could actually harm people and do do major harm to their spiritual walk. Um, let's see. Valentinius rose to prominence in Rome between 135 and 160. In Tertullian, another church father, he writes that Valentinius himself almost became the bishop of Rome. So that's how influential and popular this guy was. Um, but eventually, Valentinius would fall into apostasy later on, and um, he, like I said, he was identified as one of the three arch-heretics in the early church. So Gnosticism took elements of Christianity to formulate its beliefs, but it was not Christianity. So what are some schools of thought that do this today? Mormonism. Mormonism. <coughs> well, how do they do it? The, the Mormons have kind of, a little bit, they kind of remind me of that, in that they've got secret knowledge. 
like the Gnostics, and they also believe that Christ is a little less than God, like the Gnostics. Okay, so they, they have some similarities. Yeah. Any terminology that's similar but different nuances and definitions? Yep. What about Islam? Yep. Yep. They use similar terms. As I understand it, the existence of Islam can more or less be taken back to the fact that they could not accept the Trinity of God. They believed that God had a single entity and therefore they distorted Christianity into something else. Yep. My personal belief is Islam came about technically a Christian heresy. But then it started, it morphed into its own thing later on. All right, so, I mean, that was like, I could spend weeks on how Irenaeus, like, sing, almost single-handedly took down the arguments of Gnosticism. Uh, eventually, Gnosticism, it would have influence, and then it would die out. Um, sorry. Uh, for the most part, it wouldn't uh, attack the church that directly again, although elements of it um, still per would persist. And even in some senses today, um, in one sense, uh, Gnosticism thought that matter was evil. It's a, it's a dualistic view that matter is evil and spiritual things are good. And where do you see the problem with that kind of thinking? God created Mm-hmm. Yeah. Christ resurrected. He resurrected with a physical body. Yep. Can't resurrect as soul Yep. Um. So Irenaeus would actually use the resurrection and, or, and the incarnation to attack Gnosticism and show how it was incorrect. Go ahead. Also some forms of Gnosticism. I don't know if it's true of all because they're so varied. There's, there's so many variations on that. But one is that, you know, whatever you did with the body didn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And you see that a lot in First Corinthians is, you know, just... Yeah. You know, you can sin any way you want to with the body because the body doesn't matter, it's corrupt anyway. So. so I mentioned last week that we perhaps saw some seeds of Gnosticism in First in First Corinthians and in Second John, that uh, even before the apostles came off the scene, some of these seeds were already planted and started to spread. And so you can see a continuation of issues that the early early church was dealing with, and then later on. As the church continues, that these same issues would grow into greater strength, and the church would have to address them. Let's see, you see that in Paul's letter, he says to about himself that he wrestles with the flesh, seeming to indicate the separation between spirit and body. Well, I think he's just more talking about the the sin that he struggles with, where where the Gnostics would make a very sharp distinction that all matter is evil and wicked, where Paul is just saying, there are, there's sin still within my body that I'm, I'm trying to deal with. Not necessarily that his um, I, physical know, body is wicked. Not up on, on what Gnostics believe, but if, if I believed that matter was evil, right, then mm. the body itself is what is compelling me to want to sin, yeah. and the spirit that resides within it is fighting that body for control and trying to overcome that desire yeah so it's the the every person is dual 
Yeah, I, I could see what you're saying. I would think that Paul, though, would say that we still have a, a, a sin nature and that his body is good because God created it, even though it's corrupt. When he wrote to the Colossians, you know, it was really all about Gnosticism and in a yet an even different form there because they're all into angels and stuff like that. Paul's point was it, to other believers, when faced with this, this Gnosticism and people who claim to have special knowledge, one needs to hold fast to the basics of the gospel and, and not deviate from that which is biblical and, and extra biblical concepts and commentary were dangerous and led to Gnosticism and a twisting of the faith and a, uh, a proclamation that there are only a select special few who have this unique knowledge of what God is really doing and what he's about. He said, no, 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 no. And the basics are sufficient. So. You can sort of see where some of that might come from, though, right? All the references to the flesh. Like, I wonder what the Greek is for that now. Sarks. Sarks. Yeah, depending on how you take it, it can deal with different things, like actual, or the corrupt nature that we have. All right, so moving on. Um, now we go on to Marcionism. Very similar beliefs. Um, Marcion, Marcion, Marcion. He was a wealthy shipowner from northern Turkey who came to Rome about uh, 138 AD. He began to argue that the Old Testament was inferior to the New Testament, therefore was not authoritative. He believed the God in the Old Testament was wrathful, not the same God as the forgiving God in the New Testament. Therefore, the God in the Old Testament was a lower entity. He was a tyrant. Marcionism is very similar to Gnosticism. They're both dualistic. Again, there's a higher spiritual good and a lower material evil. The spirit is good, matter, creation is evil. So he believed there were two gods, the evil god of the Old Testament and the good god of the New. Have you heard similar things said today? Yes. How, how are they expressed? We don't have to study the Old Testament because it's mm -hmm. a yeah. angry god. Good, yeah. Marcion rejected the Old Testament. He insisted the New Testament revealed the true God. However, he only accepted 11 books from the 27 of the New Testament. These were 10 of Paul's epistles and a mutilated gospel of Luke. The Pauline epistles of Marcion approved are prominent in his canon as he believed Paul correctly transmitted Christ's message. Marcion's principal goal was to rid Christianity of every trace of Judaism, hence Marcion became known as the archenemy, quote, of the Jew God. His own father was a bishop, excommunicated Marcion in 144 because of his heretical views. However, his ideas continued to spread and his followers became known as Marcionites. Justin Martyr, the apologist who I mentioned last week, he considered Marcionism to be the most dangerous heresy of his day. And so why do you think why do you think Marcionism is so dangerous? Because it doesn't um, it doesn't make a, a the the correction or the 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 course correction that they are positing is much smaller. Mm. The larger the correction, the easier it is to say they went wrong. There's the gap. When you're when you're 11 books of the New Testament, 
says, this is what we believe. How far off can you be from the 27, right? You're, you're accepting 11 of them. Mm-hmm. At least one degree. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Many degrees. <laughs> I think yeah. the biggest danger of this is it, it's accusing God of being inconsistent. And fundamentally, belief in God is conditional on his character being utterly consistent. It's the believability, reliability, and consistency of God that enables people to put faith in him. And so when you attack his character as being erratic or having changed greatly, that fundamentally undermines his promises. Mm -hmm. Al? Sorry. Go ahead, Al. Trying to create God in our image, the, the common... Our, our pop culture loves the Jesus Jesus loves me theology. Well, if God is love and I interpret love as this, then and everything that doesn't fit with my view of love is therefore, you know, or whatever it might be, but it's just creating God and man's image. Yeah. Alan? When we read scriptures, um, just to use an academic phrase, if we read them critically, that is, we're critiquing the scriptures and deciding, yeah, I like this, I don't like that. I mean, the Jeffersonian Bible was a classic example of that. He didn't, he didn't like all the, you know, claims that Christ to be God. Well, when we start editing the scriptures based on a prior, you know, belief of what's good, then, then it's not a one degree error. <laughs> you know, mm. we can go anywhere. Um, we've got to read the scriptures critically but the critique is of ourselves. You know, the scriptures are designed for, for, for correction and reproof of us. And if we try to correct the scriptures, whether we excise the Old Testament or excise, I don't know how we got those 11 books, but you know, it's end of that, or, or we take, take the gospel and throw out the stuff we don't like, you know, mm -hmm. we're not correcting ourselves. Right. We, we are. We are correcting the wrong thing. Yep. Or filter it through a lens that isn't actually the Bible itself, which is probably the thing almost everyone is guilty of. So we need both old and new, really, for, for to understand the whole story of God, but then also for our own growth in the faith. And Irenaeus would uh, attack Marcionism by demonstrating the unity of the scriptures. Um, there's a little book, and I forgot to bring it, of course. It's called the on on the apostolic preaching. Um, it's 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 really small and it's pretty down to earth. The translation. I mean, you can read it to your kids. And uh, in there, Irenaeus goes through how he demonstrates that the Old and New Testaments are so unified that you can't really separate them like Marcion wanted to do. Um, he sets to ground out the authority of the apostolic writings in the Old Testament. He shows that the Old Testament is authoritative because the apostles constantly refer back to it. His main emphasis here is to stress the unity of the Old and New Testaments, thereby refuting Marcion's prim primacy of only the New. And um, so Irenaeus would use Scripture to sustain his arguments. It is believed that Irenaeus quoted or referred to about 900 texts of Scripture, and his work thus forms an important link in the chain of evidence for the authenticity and integrity of the, of the New Testament. He is, Irenaeus is the first person to fully articulate the extent of God's word. He, he classified scripture as the entire Old Testament 
and most of the New Testament. He recognized 21 of the 27 New Testament books, except for Philemon, 2 Peter, 3 John, and Jude. So there, in the early church, there was some disagreement about the canon, which I won't get into right now. But Irenaeus... When they canonized Depends how you use that word, what that means, but... <clears throat> a lot of people accept it. Yeah, let's, let's save that for later. Because my, my point is, though, is Irenaeus, he's recognizing that how we see the New Testament and the Old Testament today, he's got most of it already down. This is uh, second century. And this, this is, uh, where's my note here? Uh, Irenaeus completely destroys the argument that the books of the Bible were put together for political reasons by the church 300 years after Christ, because he's got already most of the New Testament recognized. Um, uh, and so he would use this line of attack to basically refute Marcionism. Um, okay, so let me wrap up. Irenaeus took out two of the arch, two of the three of the arch enemies of the early church, basically by appealing to scripture, showing its unity, also appealing to the incarnation and, and the resurrection of Christ, um, and in another way also showing that um, the knowledge was all public. The scriptures, the apostles' stories, um, remember Irenaeus knew Polycarp, and Polycarp knew John the Apostle, so you almost have, you have a direct link there, where the Gnostics' um, views and the knowledge was secret. You couldn't really disprove it. And so he also uses that as an attack to say, go look at the, the historical record. Find where we're wrong. Prove, prove us wrong, basically. And obviously, they can't do it. Um, and so he would attack uh, Gnosticism and Marcionism. Uh, Marcionism didn't last too long. Eventually, it would die out and go away. But again, we still see remnants of it today. Like you were saying, some people don't want to read the Old Testament. And so again, I, I just stress this, that with all this stuff that's going on in the past comes up again in, in new forms. And so we can look to the past to inform us today and how we can deal with old arguments that come back up. Um, and let me just... Give me, give you one more example, and I'll close out here. Um, this was pretty eye-opening for me. Um, in I think it was 2012, 2013, there was a movie called Noah. And remember that movie? Yeah. Russell Crowe was in the movie. Um, <clears throat> let me read a quote here. Okay, so I mentioned that old attacks will come in new disguises. Um, so the movie came out, and you've got a bunch of Christian leaders like, yeah, go see this movie. It's a great movie. Not realizing that it was all about Gnosticism. Um, and let's see, there's someone, ah, I can't find it. There's, so, so all these Christians, are, they're, they're endorsing the movie. It's great. It's great for Christians, blah, blah, blah. And then this, uh, I can't remember who it was, I think he's from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a professor there, he writes a counter-article to someone who wrote, a, a Christian leader who wrote a review on the, on the movie, and he basically like destroys the guy and is like, um, that movie is full of Gnosticism, and he goes, any, any 
pastor or elder or leader in the church, do you need to screen for whatever reason? They need to go take a seminary class in Gnosticism because this stuff keeps coming up again. There's no way, there's no reason that this movie should have been promoted by any Christian leader in the world because the church had already dealt with this in the early second century. And how detrimental the beliefs are to the Christian faith and personal spiritual walk. And so he, he was on fire. Like, he was so angry that people would promote this film. But my point is, this stuff keeps coming back up again and again. And it gets disguised in ways we don't really recognize or realize. You know, we see, we see a movie, we think it's about the flood. Oh, it's going to be great. Not realizing that old themes are coming back up again. So let me just close with Irenaeus, very important theologian in the early church took out two prominent heresies that, again, elements still keep coming back up. Um, I rushed through that really quick because of technical problems. Um, so next week, we'll sort of continue on the persecution theme, but they will come to an end with Constantine. So we'll talk about him and his impact on the church. Um, and there's a lot of controversy around him, too, so we'll get into that. Um, just before I close, any final questions about anything? I'm sorry I went really fast through that, but... Your last question. Yeah. What do, you think? what do I think? If he only accepted the New Testament? No. That's not sufficient because, uh, as Irenaeus showed, that um, the apostles, when they're writing their letters, they reference and quote from the Old Testament extensively. And how could they do that if they just... It's almost when you read the New Testament, you're reading the Old Testament in a sense. So that that that's impossible. I don't know, Marcion, like, but way off the rails. Go ahead. The message of salvation, although referenced in the Old Testament, is not made whole in the Old Testament. Correct. It is demonstrated in the New Testament. Correct. Accepting the New Testament therefore gives you the entire picture, if you will of salvation accepting that would be enough for salvation even if you don't have the backstory possibly as a new believer just when i was go read the gospel of john let's talk i mean i need to they're trying to get in here so let me, let me pray and close this out lord i thank you for this this day um thank you for these men have gone before us uh preserving your church thank you lord that you protect Preserve your church. You give us documents that we can look at to help us refute errors and things. Lord, we ask that you continue to build our church. Be with all of us here today. Uh, Lord, please forgive me for rushing through this quickly, but I pray that people in here were impacted, they were edified and strengthened, and they would just continue to trust in you and look to you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>